A lot of us are angry at God, angry at the suffering and pain we see around us and God's apparent unwillingness or inability to stop it. If you could put God on trial, what would your verdict be? And once you'd passed your verdict, what would you do next? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Welcome to Science of the Times Radio for another week, another episode. And with me today via Skype is Nathan Brown. How are you, Nathan? Yeah, doing well. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, Nathan Brown is uh, the book editor of uh, for the Science Publishing Company based there in the Yarra Valley outside uh, Melbourne. It's it's rainy here today in, in Sydney, uh, it's always raining in the Yarra Valley, isn't it? Is any exception today? You know, it's starting to look a, just a little bit like springtime, and that's a beautiful thing. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're totally right. <laughs> I guess we, we're heading into pretty grim territory today in, in some ways, but I'm hoping that it's it's also some inspirational, thought-provoking territory as well. And I remember when I was I was 17, getting on the train in, in Warsaw, in Poland, and heading for a little Polish town called Auschwitzim. Now, in German, Auschwitzim is pronounced Auschwitz. So, yeah, we, we headed out there where the, the Nazi death camp at, at Auschwitz has been preserved to a certain extent. You can still wander through the buildings, you can see the ovens, you can see the gas chambers, you yeah. can see rooms full of things that are personal effects that were confiscated from the uh, from the prisoners there, the prisoners who were, you know, a lot of them were, were Jewish people, obviously. And it's a really, really sobering experience and re- really makes you think. Have, have you been to, to Auschwitz, Nathan, or, or to the Killing Fields in Cambodia or, or similar places like that? No, I haven't been to Auschwitz, but I have visited some of those places in Cambodia and also within the last couple of years it has have visited two of the major holocaust museums in the world and mm. yeah it's pretty sobering stuff and a pretty heavy kind of story yeah yeah there's one here in sydney i understand but i haven't actually been to the holocaust museum here yeah last year i had the opportunity to visit the one in jerusalem oh right and of course that's the that's the museum of museums and um yeah that was a a sobering but also remarkable way of spending an afternoon. Certainly a lot to reflect on and think about and in that context and looking, watching some of the other people that were going through the stories in that context as well was yeah. quite, a, quite a remarkable thing. What, what sort of reactions do you see? Because, I mean, it's really interesting because there have been criticisms of these places. They're you know, sort of, yeah. you know, genocide theme parks. You know, some people have called them bitterly. And there are certainly people who do seem to sort of skip through them just like any other tourist experience. But if your experience was anything like mine, you, you, you would have seen people being fairly deeply affected. Was that the case in Jerusalem there? Yeah, definitely. And even some of the people in that are very identifiable as Jewish people in their traditional dress, and mm-hmm. but then also military people that were going through it as well. And, you know, you could see tears on people's faces. You could see one of the things that really struck me was like 10 and 12-year-old boys dressed in their Orthodox Jewish outfits. But, you know, that's the story they've gr- they're growing up with. 
uh, recognition of this as a part of the history of their people. And one of the things I noticed, there was a group that I was travelling with, about half a dozen of us that had travelled to the museum together and we started together going through it, but just as we were making our way through the different exhibits and the things that you watch and read, we all just kind of drifted apart mm. as we all reflected on it and went, not just because we were going at our own speed, but because there wasn't that thing of making comments to each other or that kind of thing. It was a moment really to reflect and to learn mm. and to listen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do remember seeing, you know, at, at Auschwitz, you know, people in tears as, as they walked around, you know, looking mm. at, at the different exhibits. And, and I remember being, you know, just pulling up short at this little glass cabinet that was there that had a selection of baby clothes, Yeah, you know, just laid out there, just lying there, you know, em- empty, obviously, of, of the little bodies that had once inhabited them and just thinking... Mm horrific you know like how could people do this to other people yeah. you know men women children and i think politically it certainly affected me i, I definitely headed in a more of a pacifist direction you know mm. after after that experience just seeing the you know the violence that human beings are doing to each other just think oh you know how could anyone do that how could that be a part of normal behavior and one of, one of the things that really struck me at the end of the the experience going through in the Jerusalem Holocaust Museum mm. was simply the statement that this isn't the murder of six million people, this is six million murders, that every one of those people and every one of those stories matters mm. individually. Yep. And yeah. that's a pretty sobering thing to stop and think about. And and, and it is really hard to grasp. I, I'm not sure the human mind is actually capable of really grasping that level of horror. You know, there's a, a saying that, you know, one one death is is a tragedy and you know a million deaths is a statistic and that that is sometimes the way we we think about it and unfortunately but but it is you're right it's those individuals when we focus on them we suddenly grasp a, a little more of of the horror that that has gone on places like this now you you've told uh, retold a a story of uh, a boy who was there at Auschwitz in in your article uh, yeah. in, in the September Signs of the Times magazine. The article is entitled Stubborn Faith, and we'll certainly get to exploring that. But you retell the story of a guy who, in later life, I mean, he, he survived Auschwitz, you know, praise God for that, and became a, a celebrated author. Eli Weisel, is that his name? I'm, I'm not, not literary enough to know how to pronounce his name. You, you have <laughs> I, to I, I would try it, Wiesel. Wiesel, okay. E- Eli Wiesel. So he, he tells this story of, of what happened to him as a boy in, in that Nazi death camp in, in Auschwitz. Can you, can you recount that for us? Because I, I think you know, the, the rest of your article really hangs on, on this story. Yeah, so this was a story I read a few years ago and has really stuck with me as this moment of, you know, that is evocative and catches your imagination but also has some really profound and deep questions to it. Mm. So as a, as a teenager, Wiesel was in the Auschwitz camp and he spent his life trying to retell this story, this experience that he'd had, and he, he tried to write it as a play, he tried to write it as a novel, even tried to write it as a, a musical cantata at one stage, yeah. and nothing that he tried to do could ever quite live up to his remembrance of this experience Mm. and and it was fascinating when i read it his published attempt at retelling the story was written up in a book called the trial of god Mm -hmm. and he 
again, tried to tell it, but instead of trying to tell it in the context of Auschwitz, he actually took it back to a, a pogrom in Eastern Europe a few, a couple of hundred years earlier. Mm-hmm. And that was where he set this play that was what was ultimately published in 1979. So, so in, but, in some ways, he tried to sort of fictionalize his experience through different media. By putting it in a different context, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the fascinating thing was that I'd read the play but it was the three or four paragraphs in the introduction to the play that told, retold the story itself that actually caught my attention more mm. than the play did. Yeah. Uh, so even then, I think he didn't quite live up to it. But the story was that as a 15-year-old, he was befriended by a Talmud scholar who was in the camp as well. Mm-hmm. And amidst all the craziness of, of what was going on there, they decided this, this scholar invited him to continue to study Talmud with him. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a Jewish religious text that came out of Babylon, or, or so. It's not yeah. it's not in the Bible, is it? It's a, a separate no. book. It's it's sort of commentary on what we would consider the biblical text. So right. the okay. Hebrew Scriptures and then the Talmud is some of their kind of commentaries and discussions about what that actually means. So then it kind of then over time has taken on a kind of as a you know, semi-scriptural kind of status. Right, um, okay. So, it's so, so but about this is someone who's a, who's a pretty heavy theologian anyway, when, when you yeah. say a, a Talmud scholar, that's that's what you're meaning, okay. So this scholar invited Wiesel in, while they were in the camp to actually, that they would, when they had some spare time in the barracks at night or whatever, they would um, spend some time where they would continue studying together because as a 15 year old boy he would Wiesel would have been in school at the time and so the scholar said well let's try and keep doing something normal and something mm, sensible mm. as an act of religious defiance in the midst of what was going on right right so he so he may have had his bar mitzvah perhaps just before he went to, into Auschwitz or perhaps this was some way of preparing him for one yeah. a, a little later on okay well that's well I mean that that's great certainly you can see that the Jewish faith you know really gave you know, both old and young, a real sense of identity. And even like you say, yeah. it was, there was a sense of defiance in continuing their religious practice in, in that sort of you know, horrific context. Yeah. And so Wiesel and this scholar built up this quite strong friendship. And one evening, the scholar invited Wiesel into a, a, a meeting with two other scholars who were also in, imprisoned in the camp. And mm. one of them was a a professor of jurisprudence of law, mm-hmm. and another one was another kind of theologian or some other expert. Mm-hmm. And they decided that the, between the three scholars and with Wiesel as the only kind of witness watching what they were doing, that they were going to put God on trial. Wow. And basically as an academic exercise to a degree, but you know, as a way also of processing the horror and the suffering that they were witnessing around them mm-hmm. and that they were going to charge God with basically crimes against humanity. Mm. In, in and, particular, um, neglect, I imagine. Yeah, that's it. And so over a number of meet- um, number of evenings, these three scholars basically held a mock trial of God. And in this absolutely crazy context of them being, you know, in Auschwitz and what was happening, happening to their people all around them. And they... You know, put the cases, each of the people presented their arguments and their perspectives on what they'd witnessed, but also on how this fits theologically, philosophically, all of these things. And ultimately, after a number of evenings of working through these very various debates in a very academic kind of way, I guess, they compiled all the evidence and they the three, three scholars arrived at the unanimous verdict that the Lord 
God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, was guilty of crimes against creation and humankind. Wow. I mean, that's whew, that, that's pr- pretty heavy stuff. But I imagine that there, well, I know there are a lot of people out there who would probably resonate with that deeply. I mean, yeah. I've, I've had yeah. people say to me, well, you know, how can there be a such, such a person as God? if you know he allowed me to go through this people lose their faith over the issue of suffering or reject the idea of god completely o- over suffering and it's not a new issue is it i mean it's something that humanity has been struggling with for for thousands of years yeah and so as Wiesel tells the story they 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 delivered this verdict and then they just kind of lapsed into silence the four of them just mm. sitting in this room just contemplating what they had just said Mm. You know, that God was guilty of crimes against humanity. Mm. And then one of the Talmudic scholar noted that it was time for the evening prayers, and together they recited the traditional evening service. Wow. <laughs> and that just blows my mind. You know, just imagining <laughs> yeah. that scene of these incredibly smart people going through this incredibly horrific situation, having basically found God guilty of wrongdoing in this this situation of, of you know in the face of the silence of god in the you know seeming absence of god but at the same time just turning around and saying well it's time to pray so we will pray wow. and then reciting the service that was you know one of the practices of their faith and we, to me that's just yeah you know that's such a evocative and you know something that really just catches my imagination and leaves me just thinking about how faith fits with, you know, the horrific situations that we see in the world around us, in our the suffering that we see in our own lives from time to time, mm. and where faith fits with that, and you know, where does God fit in that scenario? So, I wrote this article to share that story, and mm. then my commentary on the rest of it was just filling up the word count. If you want to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it was a bit short actually. Yeah, <laughs> is that? Is that the weakness of humanity that we we need religion as a crutch, even though logic, you know, defies the very idea of, of loving God? I mean, that's that's one way to read it, isn't it? Yeah, but then I'd also think that perhaps there's something to this that if God is God, then God must be good despite all the evidence to the contrary. And so that you know, one of the questions that is often asked in these kind of contexts, you know, can God exist? But hmm. there's probably a more important question than does God exist, and that's what is God like? Yeah. And because if God is a monster, if God is horrible, why would we want God to exist? And even hmm. if he does, there's nothing good in that. Well, and, and, if, and, and why would we want to pray to him? And this, this is my question. You know, that's right. Why, why would yeah. you then turn around and have evening prayers to a God you've just decided was a monster? That, that's what I'm trying to grapple with. <laughs> but if God is worthy of being called God... Mm. then there's there must be something that goes with it that means that he is good. Mm. And so even when all the evidence points the other way, there's this kind of stubborn faith, and that's where I got the get the title from, mm-hmm. that takes that next step and said, well, if God is actually worthy of being God, then I have to trust that he is good even when my current circumstances and and so much of the evidence seems to point the other direction because mm, mm. God is something beyond that. So so God is good even when life is not good. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges is that mm. whatever our faith is, uh, and in this context of this series that we've been working through in Science Magazine, whatever mm. the context of our faith, 
life challenges our faith. Mm. You know, the experience, the inevitable experiences of life will be a test of our faith and will often, you know, question our faith in some pretty serious kinds of ways because the reality is that life is not good mm. you know, in so many ways. There is so much good about life and the world that we live in, but there's also so much that is not good and that we can't try and pretend it is. Mm. And so that, that asks some pretty serious questions about how can we believe in something good when so much isn't. Yeah, yeah. And so this, the, the stubbornness of faith that perhaps ne- is needed for faith to be sustainable is that the goodness of God is something beyond the non-goodness of the, our experiences of life around us. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the natural human inclination is to say, well, why would you practice religion or, or faith if you didn't get something good out of it? You know, what's, what's the point? What, what would you say to that? Well, that's an interesting question, and I mean, but what else do you do in some of these situations? Yeah. You know, in Auschwitz with these three scholars sitting around and saying, well, we've just found God guilty of crimes against humanity, but where else do we go? What other option have we got? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the only other option, and we could give it into Viktor Frankl and his man's search for meaning, is to simply give up. Mm-hmm. That and, and, and he found that people who gave up in Auschwitz died didn't he? That's right. Where, that, yeah. yeah. And that's what he saw made the difference between the people who survived and the people that didn't uh, was to have something to actually hope for and something beyond themselves mm. that kind of pulled them through their present circumstances and gave them, you know, hope in that sense. Again, against all evidence to the contrary. But it actually played, in that case, it made an actual pragmatic and practical difference in their survival rates Mm. and how they were able to live well, even in the worst of circumstances. Yes. So so some sense of hope, some sense of meaning, you know, transcendence might be a a word we could use there, is actually something that is, or can be incredibly sustaining for for human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But there are still incredible paradoxes there, aren't there? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Difficulties. And that's, I mean, this story itself is the paradox of all, this idea mm-hmm. that, but on the other hand, I mean, it's not so different from, you know, you go back to the Bible and read the story of Job. Yeah. Everything goes wrong. All his circumstances, you know, he's lost his children, he's lost all his wealth, his wife's telling him to give up, his friends are, crit- you know, accusing him of doing all sorts of wrong thing and bringing this evil upon himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really he just holds on to his face that somehow in the midst of this that God is good and that there must be some kind of explanation behind it, but mm-hmm. he never really gets that explanation. Yeah. You know, at the end of the story, he kind of gets an affirmation from God that you're on the right track, Yep. but that's about as clear as it gets. <laughs> and and I, I can hear what you're saying because like earlier in the piece, you know, Job says something in, in the, you know, grand old King James version, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Mm. You know, this is Job, you know, speaking of God, you know, if, even if God kills me, I'll keep trusting him, which is, I mean, some would not call that stubborn faith, some would call that blind faith. <laughs> but nevertheless, yes. it's something that Job just keeps clinging onto through thick and thin, even, even though he's in the middle of, of yelling at God and criticizing God and asking God why, he's mm. still desperately clinging on and, and saying, I'm going to trust you through, through thick and thin. And he also has kind of this thing, if only I could get to God and sort of state my case or mm-hmm. 
you know, if only this could be sorted out in some way, I think it would make sense. And I guess that's a kind of stubborn faith, the fact that, you know, if we could see a bit more of the big picture, perhaps we could see some rhyme or reason to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. In some of these situations, if you go to, back to the Auschwitz situation, that's almost impossible to do, um, to actually assume that there's something that there's some reason for it, because the whole point of evil is that it is inexplicable. Mm. If, it, if it made sense, if it, it's actually the evil that is illogical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot we tell totally to say, well, it's not logical to le- believe in God, but it's actually illogical. The, the evil is illogical, and that is part of the reason why we define it and understand it as evil, mm. because oh, we can't yeah. understand it. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing right or good about it. Mm. I, I guess um, God, God created the universe in a certain way with, with certain laws and, and evil then goes against the grain uh, of that universe, which is a, a logical, rational, or ordered place. So mm, uh, mm. what you're saying totally makes sense in you know, looking at it in, in that context. Evil yeah. is senseless because it, it doesn't conform to the, the laws of the universe and the, and the way it was created to be. Yeah. And so, you know, it, when we get caught in these kind of situations, when you say, well, how can it be logical to believe in God because we see so much evil? Mm. The reason we recognize it as evil is because it is wrong, mm-hmm. which then pushes us back to say, well, if it's wrong, that's why we're calling it evil. That's why it's illogical. That's why we can't get our head around it. Mm. Well, that pushes us back to trust that there must be some kind of logic, there's some kind of right, some kind of goodness mm. that sets up all of that as illogical and wrong and evil. Yeah, you're uh, right, so yeah. If, if we can identify e- evil, that implies there is a moral order to the universe. We, we know the difference between right and wrong. You know, where did we get that idea from? Mm, must have come yeah. from somewhere. And, you know, there's very few people that would argue that the Holocaust, for example, isn't wasn't an act of great evil. Mm. So what's our basis for saying that? And, and of course, that, that we can have a long argument on the ba- on, you know, from that jumping off point. Mm. Mm. But even just to stop there for a minute and say, okay, this is wrong. Mm. Why can we say that's wrong? And you know, why do we read a story like this and say, well, these guys have been overwhelmed by the evidence of the evil around them. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. then, but then they're pointing back to this is why we can say this is not how it should be. You know, there's this this protest made to God in this act of proclaiming, you know, announcing their verdict of God as guilty. They're saying, God, this is not how it ought to be. Hmm. You know, God, we believe better of you than this. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes its own act of faith to say, you know, and throughout the Bible, this kind of spiritual practice of lament. Hmm is basically an act of, you know, a lot of people look at lament and say, well, that sounds, you know, like you're doubting or like you're questioning, but Mm -hmm. it's actually an act of faithfulness to say this isn't how it should be. Mm. And we're appealing to a a higher good, and in in the biblical case, to God, to say, hey, we need this to be set right, and we we need, you know, the evil to be frustrated and to be removed and to be defeated. Mm. Uh, That's the bigger picture of what we're doing when we're, we're identifying something as not as not right. Yeah, yeah, wow. And I guess there's another Bible text that sort of jumps to mind for me in the New Testament. You know, Jesus said some pretty tough things sometimes, and people struggled to hear them. And the, he, uh, when he started talking about, um, 
you know, eat, eating his body and drinking his blood, you know, sort of prophesying, you know, before his crucifixion, that sort of freaked a lot of people out and they all disappeared. And, and Jesus, you know, says to his 12 disciples around him, he's, you know, the close guys who are close to him and says, you know, are, are you guys going to go as well? And the reply from the disciples is, where can we go? You have yeah. the words of life. And it, there's that sense of stubborn faith there, isn't there, that you know, we don't understand what you're saying. What you're saying is actually really difficult to hear and you know, it, it doesn't <laughs> yep. even make sense to us, but there is something going on with you that we're just going to cling to. We're not going to let go of because, yeah, there's there's a bigger plan at play here. Mm, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, so later in the article, I actually used a quote from um, Eugene Peterson, which talks about this idea of, and he was talking about it in the context of worship, which yeah. kind of fits where we, where these guys finished yeah. in their in their in their story. The idea about how we think that it's inauthentic to do something that we don't feel, mm. but there's kind of this other way of looking at it that when we worship, when we sort of commit ourselves to God in this way, then we actually align ourselves to that way of thinking, that way of understanding what's mm, going on around yeah. us. And it helps us feel the way we act leads to a feeling rather than the other way, waiting until we feel like worshipping God. Yeah. Because, yeah. and I think I was fascinated by that idea even, and I know you've um, in the past talked with Darren Morton about how he talks about how we can change our feelings by the way we act. Yes, yeah. And that this brings a spiritual dimension to that. Rather than waiting, you know, in Darren's case, you'd say rather than waiting till you feel energetic and enthusiastic and then you go and do some exercise or go for a run or whatever. Yeah. If you actually get out and go for a run, you feel energized yeah, and you feel yeah. more like it. After you've done it for a few minutes, you start to, you know, you, your body kicks in and begins to feel the way that you're acting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's, it reminds me a little bit of um, something my wife says to me now and again when she's a, a bit upset at me. I say to her, oh, do, do you still love me? She says, I don't like you right now, but yes, I still love you. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it. So and 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 I I swear it's not because she actually is feeling love towards me at the moment. Mm. She just knows that that is a deeper reality beyond that immediate situation. Well, and even that's a that's a choice that she has made. Absolutely. And continues to make. And I think both of those kind of examples can be used to help us understand how faith can fit with our lives. That, mm -hmm. and, and again, it's this stubbornness to keep making that choice even when we don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, um, the, the, the beauty of being a, an editor, Nathan, is that you, you get to sort of put words in your, your writer's mouths. And, and in this case, in your article, we added a little blurb at the beginning that, that says, when you're angry at God, pray. When there's nothing left that's worth saying, pray, and that is sort of the experience that we see there in in Auschwitz. That yeah. you know, w yeah. when there are no more answers, and the you know, the pray is some like you're saying, it's a choice. You don't wait till you feel to do it. You you just do it. So, how do you pray in those sorts of circumstances? Oh, well, I guess my first answer is I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, fair because enough. in these absolute, you know, and in even in our own experiences of desperate times when we're going through experiences of grief or tragedy or sorrow or mm. frustration, there's something that is beyond us as human beings. But there is then this choice that we make to say, well, even in this situation, I submit myself to something bigger. Yeah, and so prayer is kind of doing that. It's reaching outside of ourselves 
And even by just decentering ourselves from the experience, that becomes a helpful thing in helping us, you know, get a different perspective on it. And but we also believe that we're connecting with something so much bigger, so much better, so much more powerful, a so much bigger perspective on our current situation. Mm. And so I think that's a key part of what prayer is. And so, you know, we it, often we talk about prayer as you know saying the right words or you mm. know reciting something or whatever it might be, and that can actually be a helpful thing to recite something. That isn't something we have to worry about the words. We can just, you know, mm. the Lord's Prayer, for example, yeah. can simply say, these are some words that we've been given that can help us reach out when we don't really know what to say. Yeah. But even by that process, that's a, that's a really good starting point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, often the hardest part of any conversation, even in human relationships, is the big, is starting it. Yes, knowing what to say. Yep. That's right. And how do you how do you say hi? How do you say something to that person in it, when it feels awkward, when it feels strained, when it feels desperate? Mm. And, uh, and 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 sometimes the answer is, hey, j- if you have a friend going through a hard time, just be there. Like your presence is important. And I guess we can do that with God too. We can say, God, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be in your presence, and I really, you know, want to know that that you are here in, in my presence too. That's it. And you know, go from there. And yeah. you know, it it's something that's hard to explain in that sense. But yeah, there's a reality that many people have found to that. Mm. You know, it's simply taking that step to reach out beyond, you know, in not waiting like till we feel like it, but actually acting like we would if 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 it felt like it. Well, some uh, pretty challenging thoughts there, Nathan. But yeah, thanks so much for your time today, for, for the article and and for today's episode. So I, re- I recommend reading the story because it's one of my favourite stories, and there's just so much to think about. So I'm glad to be able to share it. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just twenty six dollars for eleven issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.